everybody. Welcome back. You're listening to Aid Evolved, and I'm your host, Rowena Luke. This season, we're diving into health tech founders and innovators in Africa. And there are a few people as qualified to speak on this topic as Mara Hansen Staples. Mara is the founder of Salient Advisory, an advisory firm that guides investors in health in emerging regions. Before that, she was the co-founder of Impact for Health and spent many years at the Gates Foundation, leading an investment portfolio of over $100 million that focused on health financing and public-private partnerships. If there's one thing that stayed with me from this conversation, it was how ridiculous it is that funders and investors and big pharma are trying to invest in the future of the African healthcare industry. And yet there are so few people in those conversations who actually live in and understand the African healthcare market. Mara's on a mission to change all of that. And towards the end of the podcast, she talks about a really exciting opportunity that she's spearheading to provide funding and commercialization assistance to health tech founders in Africa. If you're a tech founder with an idea that could improve the delivery of life-saving medicines to people in Africa, head over to innovationsinafrica.com. Deadline to apply is August 14th. Or if you know of someone that could benefit from this opportunity, please pass the word along. Now, let's get back to our chat with Mara. We begin by hearing how she found her way into the public health space. So I actually grew up in Seattle, Washington, and I grew up thinking that I would be an actress. So I studied theater wow. my whole life, yeah, which is really fun. Really? And then I went to university and studied theater um, for the first few years and realized, you know, quickly into university that maybe life as a struggling actor wasn't for me. And oh, no. I know, I know. It takes a, it takes a so really tough, tough soul to do that. <laughs> But in the process of, of reconsidering what I wanted to do with my life, I took a medical anthropology class um, with Dr. Joyce Millen, who had moved from Partners in Health to the small liberal arts college I was studying at. And Joyce really taught us to look at healthcare through people's stories and how people understand their own illness and care seeking and the healthcare system through their own cultural lens and sort of how the structures in society have their own stories and violence in interacting with people as they seek care. And so it was this, yeah, it was this really wonderful introduction to public health through understanding sort of people's stories and then the structures of care and violence that exist in the healthcare system and how these things interact. And so, you know, meeting her and studying with her was like my gateway drug into public health. (laughs) And, um, and uh, so she was a huge influence on me and I, I sort of pivoted and decided I wanted to, um, go into public health, study public health. I thought for a while I wanted to be a physician. So anyway, after after I completed university, I went into the Peace Corps and was in Morocco, where I lived in a very small village in the eastern High Atlas Mountains. Um, At the end of a road, a dirt road, the village had just been electrified. 
the year or two before I arrived. And so um, there I, I supported a nurse in a rural dispensary to do census data collection on sort of how many women and children were living in this village. You know, we rode motorbikes through, you know, flooding rivers to get our vaccine resupplies every few weeks. We did a, did a bunch of things that are required to sort of bring, you know, get information and bring products and services to people in really rural areas, which was really fascinating. And, and I also got quite interested there in, in sexually transmitted infections, as there's a large population of domestic commercial sex workers who migrate around rural areas in Morocco to provide services to migrant workers and, of course, are then subject to infectious diseases. So did some work to set up testing for commercial sex workers and um, education and treatment and became really interested in sort of migrant health and how do you provide information and products and services to people who are moving, to people who may not have IDs? How do you provide a continuum of care and ensure they're safe in seeking that? So it was, it was really, really a fascinating period of time. After coming back from Morocco, Mara got a master's in public health at Harvard University. And then in a very short period of time, found herself working as a program officer at the Gates Foundation. She led over $100 million of investments in innovative ways of engaging with the private sector and expanding healthcare financing. I asked her, Mara, what did you take away from those years at Gates? What did you learn? What would you want to change? I think one of the lasting influences that my time the Gates Foundation has on me is the sense of urgency and optimism with which the organization approaches the world. And this is really set, you know, at the top. Bill and Melinda are such brilliant, optimistic, and as they say, impatient people who want to solve really big problems. And I think that sense of urgency and optimism remains with me today. You know, that taken too far is, of course, dangerous. When you, you know, <laughs> we've seen sort of the, the ugly side of that coin personified maybe by the U.S. tech industry's embrace of move fast and break things. I think that type of approach can be quite dangerous, of course, at its extreme. But I think um, really living from a balanced place of humility, but also urgency and optimism is really, really powerful. I was lucky enough to play a role on global health, on global policy and advocacy, and on global development during my time there. So I got, got quite an interesting cross-section of what the foundation does. And by the time I left, I was managing a large portfolio and had a little team and the work that I could do, I felt was an inch deep and 20 miles wide. My ability to understand the nuances of what was happening in any of my investments and how to be the most effective advocate for the partners and programs that were well positioned to succeed was, was really limited. And I was huh. craving a position in which I could dive more deeply into content areas and contexts that I really cared about and understand them 
at a very deep level to provide that advice versus sort of sitting on the other side of the table where you can understand things at a less nuanced level, but are responsible for making those decisions. In 2015, Mara stepped away from the Gates Foundation. First, she co-founded Impact for Health, a public health consulting firm. And then in 2020, she created Salient Advisory. We chatted about what her mission or her goal was for these organizations. The overarching objectives of of my consulting work through Impact for Health and now through Salient have been consistent, which is to provide global investors in really strong advice on how they can leverage the private sector to advance their health goals. Um, So that, that theme remains consistent, but I think, you know, During our time at Impact for Health, um, I started tracking health tech startups and supply chain at the behest of one of my mentors, Prashant Yadav. And at the time, I didn't have a background in supply chain, but he knew that I was interested in and had a lot of experience in thinking about innovative private sector models. So we started tracking these companies, me and an associate, and you know, found 30 companies and interviewed them and, and were kind of excited about what they were doing and then flew all over the world to Geneva and New York and Seattle and DC <laughs> and UK to tell people about them. And at the beginning, you know, folks looked at us with totally glassy eyes. And I just like, <laughs> what are you even oh. talking about? And oh no. Yeah. And yes. I mean, I even had the head of supply chain for a major, you know, USAID contractor say to me, we don't need innovation in supply chain. We know how to move products you- to people. We just, you know, we, we're, we're not able to do it perfectly, but we know what needs to be done. So attention to That's innovation. Wild. Yeah. Attention to innovation is, is misguided and misplaced. And so that sounds so condescending, I want to say. like that, that sounds like a tough conversation for you to have. Yeah, it was surprising to me. <laughs> it was surprising. But, um, <laughs> no, I, I, again, I, I'm not a supply chain expert. And so, you know, I think, I think there's probably some truth to what was being said. You know, a lot of things we know, you know, what needs to happen. Maybe the problems aren't solved by innovation. There are certainly other challenges that inhibit the movement of products to people. So I think there's some truth in what was being said, but, you know, I also, of course, craved a little bit more openness <laughs> to new ways of doing things. Um, so it was really, it was really fun to start that exploration at Impact for Health. Um, and I think around the, the end of the first year of working on this project, I, the first, you know, we'd flown, as I said, to around to all these places in, in Europe and the U.S. to share what we found. And so many of the conversations did not involve a single African, myself included. Huh. You know, so I'm talking yeah. to donors, funders, to leaders in the pharmaceutical industry about the future of African health tech and their supply chains. And nobody from these markets is here to validate or question what I'm saying. And there were no voices beside me from within these markets to validate kind of their product market fit, you know, the strength of their leadership capacities, the likelihood that they'll be able to succeed in some of their goals. 
And so that's ridiculous. Yeah, it that's, was that's wild. Just, that's ridiculous. Like if you look at the the way that the market works, the purchasing power, the kind of commodity is like the way that it's packaged in price and like so many different aspects of how the health supply chain in Africa runs, which is different uh, than what funders in Washington or Seattle might be used to. Like that just, it, that blows my mind and it's, it's unacceptable. Yeah, totally. So, you know, I'm really lucky that the foundation kind of a saw the potential of these companies early on and then also wanted to change how the conversation was happening alongside of me. And so, you know, I was able to go back to them and say like, let's track these innovations more seriously, but I don't want to do this myself anymore. You know, I need a more experienced team that's in these markets who come from the technology industry, who have long history in supply chain and health systems who can track these companies and then be the global voices for the future of African health tech. Because those voices, you know, the voices advising the donors should not come from Vancouver, but instead should come from <laughs> Lagos and Cape Town and Nairobi and, you know, Casablanca and elsewhere. So it was really fun. They, they, they said, oh, absolutely, you know, we're, we agree with that, <laughs> both the approach and the potential. So let's do it. And so I was thrilled to get a couple years of funding to start a team that would do this, which allowed us to spin off and form Salient. So amazing. Yeah. So amazing. Salient's been running now for two years. We just had our two year anniversary this month. And Happy birthday. Thank you. Um, and it was so fortuitous. Number two, that's a big deal. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's true. Now you're, now you're in the terrible twos. You're in the angry toddler <laughs> stage. So good luck with that. Mara, can I, can I ask, um, like, what, what I think was so, so cool and so amazing about your story is that you came from a, from a pure, from like the global health, public health space, from the financing side, and you found your way over to tech, um, mm. you know, to technology as like a, a space of intervention and like African health tech, you know, like making that connection in the African ecosystem and supply chain, which I actually didn't realize was such a strong focus of your work already. And those are, I mean, like the, uh, anyways, as someone who has, who has worked a ton in technology and supply chain, like, like it, it resonates with me as a, as a high impact space to land on, but, but curious if there's anything more that, that you could say about like how you landed here, you know, like you can, you can go so many different directions with health financing, but like why technology? Why supply chain? Yeah, it's a great question. I would say two things happened in the pandemic. One, interest and innovation across the continent just exploded. So we then saw, as you're well aware, you know, just a huge amount of activity in telemedicine, in telepharmacy, in digital counseling, in a number of areas of health technology. It's been wild. Yes. It's been so, so interesting. So much fun. Yes, absolutely. And what we actually see when we look at this space is the collapse and sort of disruption of traditional models of delivering information and products and services, which may put, you know, your distribution of products in us in one vertical, your counseling in another vertical, your healthcare payments in another vertical, your interaction with the provider in another vertical. But what we see through these tech enabled models is you often see a supply chain company partnering with a telemedicine company trying to do digital counseling, deliver the product direct to consumer, et cetera, facilitate a payment 
system through mm-hmm. a private insurer. So you see, you know, a lot of these yeah. companies we traditionally thought of as kind of just innovating on moving products to people, really integrating themselves across both digital and physical and sometimes hybrid journeys. So it's become an interesting entry point to a much broader patient journey, of course. And as such, it's also become an interesting entry point to think about, you know, system change. And how do we think about the data, the payments, you know, the visibility, the decisions, not just from a supply chain lens, but really thinking about, you know, kind of the system and the patient there. So, so it's expanded a lot. I would say that's on the technical side. On the personal side, amidst the pandemic, I also became a patient. I, I started to get sick actually around 2016 and had some pains in my body that were unfamiliar. And, um, and it was really interesting because I've been a very healthy person most of my life. I, uh, it's very yeah. hard in Canada, even though we have a universal healthcare system to get access to a primary care doctor. So I actually started going to walk-in clinics and um, talking to physicians about some of the symptoms I was experiencing and getting various tests. And because we don't have, you know, electronic healthcare records here that are systematic across kind of our, our clinics and hospitals, you know, I would collect my results in on paper and take them and take the notes from my doctors at these walk-in clinics about what was happening with me. These were x-rays and blood work and imaging. And at the end of my probably 18-month care-seeking period, I was carrying around an enormous binder of all my medical (laughs) results. But in this period of time in which I didn't have um, a doctor and I was sort of experiencing some symptoms and needed some follow-up and and it, it wasn't acute yet. I was sort of collecting all this information, these, these health records and keeping them for myself. Um, and then I started to get really quite, quite sick and have some pretty debilitating pain in my back. Actually, because I couldn't get access to a primary care doctor to follow up on these, some of the imaging I'd had done, I had to go to my, it was like my elected representative who advised me. Whoa. I know. Who it, well done escalating though. Well done bringing <laughs> it to the, to the powers that matter. Because for someone like you, you know, like you're a strong founder, yeah. female, like running your own company, yeah. uh, like being taken down by an illness must've been super frustrating for you. Yeah. It was, it's really hard to become sick suddenly and to, to be trying to run a company and you know, keep myself safe during a pandemic and all these sorts of things. So I, I, I'm probably the most, you know, privileged immigrant to Canada (laughs) you can imagine. (laughs) And yet I had a really hard time getting into the system. And he actually advised me, you know, you have to lie to get in front of a doctor. Cause at some point the, the walk-in clinics will just say to you, we can't see you for anything that isn't episodic. So we can't see you to follow up on these results. We won't schedule you an appointment. And I of course needed a continuum of care. And so my MP advised me, you know, you just lie to get an appointment. And then once you're in front of the doctor, they have a responsibility. Yeah. Given their license to provide you the medical care you need. Yes. And so it's crazy. So I got in front, I lied to get my appointment, got in front of a doctor who sent me to a rheumatologist. And because of that, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition for which I now take biologics, which are um, a very expensive, somewhat new class of medication 
that's delivered to me every two weeks. I was also given a cancer diagnosis that required surgery. They thought it was a a big uh, tumor in my kidney at the time. And it turned out to Mm. not be cancerous, but it was removed urgently during the pandemic. So this, so me carrying around my medical records and advocating for myself in this fragmented system, then, you know, getting into the system, receiving care. And that since I got these diagnoses, I've been entirely sort of provided access to my clinicians, to counseling for my medication, to ordering and resupply for my drug, which happens on a monthly basis through telemedicine, telepharmacy, and emails. Like these have been a lifeline. And having the ability to interface with the medical system in that way is what allows me to work. And allows me to be a part of my, you know, family life and to continue to kind of live because if, if I need to travel to all these appointments in person or need to spend a lot of time on resupply of my medication, it's really taxing, you know, as a patient. And this is just something that women all over the world face in much more extreme circumstances than myself. But, but if you become a patient, you have to manage those those pieces, it's a really, it's a really huge amount of time. So having digitally enabled access is an absolute lifesaver for me because I derive such satisfaction from my work. And I'm also, you know, uh, I also earn money to, for my family life. <laughs> you know, it allows me to do my job to earn money. So it's really transformative. So I was technically really interested in this space. And then it personally became a large part of my life. And both of those things have fueled really my interest in, in how can these types of approaches ease access for me, but also for, for women all over the world who are constrained by time and constrained by systems that aren't built to facilitate access to, to things we need. Mary, that, that is compelling. That is compelling. I know nowadays you're you're taking your work in supply chain with salience and you're you're starting the next big thing. Maybe I'll let you explain what what's going on right now, but uh, what's what's going on now? <laughs> yeah, we're really excited. So we've been providing market intelligence, you know, on on sort of innovations in supply chain for the last 2 years to a range of global stakeholders and every year the number of companies we're tracking grows. And every year, more and more people are interested in African innovators and their potential impact. So we've been just so thrilled uh, at the response and the growing interest. But unfortunately, you know, when we go around to the Gates Foundation and to MSD and to the WHO and others, they would all, they're all now very excited, but really struggled with a way to engage to support the company's commercialization and impact. And this is because, you know, it's very difficult for them to process information on what's happening with respect to African innovations. It's very difficult for them to contract directly with any of these smaller companies for pilot projects and experimentation. And it's very difficult for them to learn what their partners who may have slightly different skills and capacities, but very similar goals are doing and to structure sort of collaborative work. 
so interesting. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Like it's there's there's an interest in this space, but because it's not strategic priority number one of MSD to unlock African health tech, there's there's a need for for some other kind of learning community or ecosystem uh, to bring together that to sort of fill that gap. Like there's the interest there, there's the appetite there, there's funding, but you're saying that you found it was like the mechanism was missing. Yes. The mechanism right? is missing. And we hear all the time from companies, it's so painful to apply to, you know, <laughs> not to throw my nearest and dearest client under the bus, but to the Gates <laughs> Foundation, you know, for financing. Because We not- throw them under the bus. We love them. We hate them. <laughs> yes, you know, exactly. it's, it's normal. It's normal. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, because the, the mechanisms for getting a grant, whether it's from a private foundation or from a bilateral organization, you know, are so onerous. And they're really not mechanisms mm. that are set up for companies that are, you know, startups, as you know. So, yeah. so, you know, we just don't even have the contracting mechanisms to do that efficiently and effectively. And then, you know, places, each type of institution that may want to interface with these companies have their own set of strategic objectives and their own set of capacities. So, you know, the Gates Foundation might be, for example, really interested in the delivery of family planning products, and they can give grants that align with their charitable objectives in that direction. But they also may have some ability, you know, to help support the evolution of regulations in that space. So let's say they invest in, you know, a Mm. particular company and want to play in those two areas. They may not know that simultaneously, you know, a pharmaceutical company is is looking at that company and saying, "That's, that's such an exciting company for the delivery of three other product categories we care about, but we actually can't engage with that company because the regulations that govern this space aren't, aren't clear to us yet. And so engagement with this company for the purposes of our goals is a bit risky because of this open, the regulatory space is still open, but because they don't, there's no easy mechanism for them to come together and identify both these opportunities and these challenges, you know, there may be no way in which the Gates Foundation realizes like, oh, we, you know, supporting the regulatory strengthening of this space is, is one of our objectives. We could, we could prioritize that more aggressively if we heard from our partners in industry and our partners at the WHO that this is also their priority you know, and vice versa. So I just think there's a lot of interest and appetite to work together, but it's hard to do in this space. And so we wanted to provide some of that forum for both, you know, risk tolerant financing to flow for, to, to African companies, and then for joint learning across industry donors and African institutions um, to see if we can kind of create more value by getting together and saying, what are the what are the opportunities and how can we each bring our capacities to the table to advance action that makes so much sense so at a macro scale the thing that you're trying to solve is how do we bring together what's broken from or what you know how do we bring together the best from what the the aid community wants to inject into this market and what the private sector wants to inject into this market how can we run a bunch of tests how can we bring all the actors together and sort of play out the ways in which we could maximize offerings from aid organizations like Gates and also from pharmaceutical companies like MSD, right? Yeah, I would position it slightly differently in saying we have kind of three bodies we're trying to bring together. So donors, industry, as well as African institutions. So when 
we launched I3, which we launched just a few weeks ago. The program is sponsored by the Gates Foundation on the donor side from industry. Um, it's MSD and Amerisource Virgin. And from the African institution side, it's WHO Afro and Auda Napad. So sponsors. That's a hell of a lineup. I know. Wait, did you do that? We how, did. How did that happen? <laughs> you wrote that? Like you, you conceived this thing? Yes, we did. And we designed That's amazing. it. amazing. Yeah, we designed it over wow. eight or nine months. Mara mentioned quite a few names just then. And for those of you that aren't familiar with all of them, this is really a who's who of some of the big actors in health tech in Africa. We've got the Gates Foundation, the second largest charitable foundation in the world. From the private sector, we've got MSD, which is the name that Merck goes by outside of the United States, one of the largest manufacturer of drugs in the world. And she's also managed to draw in Amerisource Bergen, again, one of the largest drug distributors in the world. We're talking here about companies with an annual revenue of $100 billion. And of course, you can't do anything without the World Health Organization, the WHO, which supports this venture through their Africa regional office. And the last supporter, Mara mentions, Auda Nipad. This one's going to be quite the acronym. It refers to the African Union Development Agency's new partnership for Africa's development program. Mara and Salient Advisory are responsible for coordinating this whole ecosystem. But they're not alone. They're working hand-in-hand and side-by-side with CEDAR and Southbridge A&I to do so. Southbridge A&I is a technology accelerator and strategic consulting firm based in Morocco, while CEDAR is a management and healthcare consulting firm from Nigeria. We went to every conceivable sponsor and asked them, would you be willing to join? And, and most people saw the vision. Some people got it instantly and said, absolutely, yeah. we need this. It's critical for the future of our, of our strategies. And so the people you see at the table are the early adopters. They are really, really, really great champions for the future of African innovation and see these types of networks as laying the groundwork for investing in innovation more broadly. I mean, when I, I'm really inspired by programs like Horizon Europe, which is a 95 billion euro program to invest in European innovations that contribute to the SDGs. Or like in the US, huh. the NIH's commercialization readiness pilot, which is you know a yes. systematic way the US government commercializes health tech. Yeah, but the NIH program is a huge enabler for health tech companies that are starting up in the United States. You know, there's there's one mental model, which is like hardworking young American, you know, creates their company from scratch. But really, there's a lot of handholding. There's a lot of funding that comes directly from the government to get them off the ground. And you don't have those kinds of mechanisms in a lot of African countries where there's still talent and there's still interest and they're still trying to get off the ground in the same way. Absolutely. So well put. And, you know, when we look in the North American context, at least, you have these mechanisms, not just regionally like the EU has or nationally like the NIH, but you have them at the state level, you have them at the city level, you know, this joint investment by government in both creating prosperity and jobs and also advancing social impact is a real is a real hallmark of a lot of the ways governments serve their citizens. And I think, yeah. you know, what's interesting about innovation support efforts on the continent is that governments are very constrained fiscally and will continue to be so in the next com- in the coming years. And so I think 
you know, just the space to think about these longer term and make these longer term investments is more limited. But we saw donors coming in and, and trying to fill that space a little bit, um, but in very siloed ways. So um, they'll be country specific, maybe regionally specific, have a particular area of focus within health, which may be very narrow, depending on the particular products they want to deliver or services they want to deliver. And that type of structure is not ideal in developing these ecosystems of innovation and in, in helping companies scale. And so I3 really takes a pan-African approach, which we're really excited about, to invest yeah. in 30 companies in supply chain across the continent every year. And the companies will be selected into the program by experts regionally who understand product market fit. So we didn't want people in Washington, in Seattle, in London, deciding which companies <laughs> are best fit to <laughs> scale, have the best chance of scale, but instead wanted you know folks who've been working and leading kind of some of these ecosystems across the continent to be in the position to decide that. So yeah, people who understand the market, have worked in the market, have you know fought and won that market should be the ones deciding like, is this product gonna change that market? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so we're so, so lucky to be working with in West Africa, CC Hub, in Southern Africa, Startup Bootcamp, in Northern Africa, Impact Labs. They're also, they're based out of Morocco. So they're covering um, Francophone West Africa as well. And then in East Africa, Vilgro. So they, these, the leaders in these organizations are helping us select seven to eight companies in each region each year that will come into the I3 cohort. And then in partnership with our sponsors, we're basically focusing on introducing these companies to potential customers. So our major value proposition for this program is to try to support commercialization. And so we'll be looking at how do we introduce these companies to global health donors, to industry, to folks in governments, if they want to expand into new, into new markets um, so that they, and to investors so that they can get pilot programs, partnerships, contracts, and investment to help them scale. And then the second thing we'll be doing is providing a small grant to each one of those companies just systematically, which is really flexible in how it can be used, just needs to be used to support the company's commercialization and impact. And, you know, they sort of can determine with us what that is expended on. So we're really trying to reduce transaction costs on that side, providing them some risk tolerant capital, and then really trying to facilitate introductions to the customers who can, who can help scale their impact. Um, so it's an experiment. We'll see how it goes, but we're really excited to do it over 24 months. We'll have two different cohorts. And the first cohort is the application is open now. What's the deadline? The deadline is August 14th. Well, I better get moving. Good to know. Yeah. Good to know. <laughs> I'm writing this down, but I cannot wait to see how it plays out over the course of the next 24 months. Tomorrow we could talk forever, but we're running out of time. So I'm just going to switch over to our rapid fire questions that we use to wrap up this show. First question for you is if you have any message for donors or investors in African health tech, how can we improve the current financing landscape? Hmm. This is a great question. <laughs> Thank you for answering it. And I'm going to give you a non-traditional answer. 
Oh, interesting. I'm intrigued. Okay, we'll see. You know, I want to posit (laughs) that a major um, challenge right now in the health tech landscape is actually on the demand side. The demand from government Hmm. and the demand from donors for innovations in um, the delivery of information, products, and services. So I would challenge donors and governments to get really sharp about the problems they want to solve for. You know, if it's in supply chain, what what do you want to pay to move products from point A to point B at what level of availability and and see what the ecosystem of innovators can bring you as solutions and be open to those. So, you know, articulating what are your demands? What are your problems? What are your needs? And um, opening that conversation with the incredible set of innovators across the African continent who are trying to solve some of these problems will be so, so transformative, I think. So articulate your demand. What problems are you solving for? And I think the ecosystem will have such interesting responses. Nice. Advice. If you could take a step back in time, what advice would you give your younger self? Mm. I, or maybe you got it all right back then. <laughs> no, <laughs> I did not. Um, okay. The biggest advice I would give my younger self is not to take one's health for granted. So I think oh, just to focus really on, yeah, focus on enjoying each of the moments and challenges and processes, because, you know, I think as I get older, I come to the inevitable realization that we're all mortal and, you know, our life and our health is so fragile. And so each of these, I know exactly. But I think, I I think I would, I would want to remind my former self, like embrace the joy and the challenges because they're all such gifts you know, and we're all, we're all mortal and we can sort of make abstract study of, of healthcare and, and illness and, huh. and healing. But, you know, at the end, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> our lives are actually quite personal and, and, um, yeah. and those, those concepts are, are real and should, should in like the fragility of, of each of us and our, our health and, you know, our life journeys are really, yeah, precious. So just embrace Absolutely. Those, those Absolutely. Would you like to offer a shout out to someone who has inspired or guided your work? Yes. Right now, the person who's really inspiring and guiding my work on a weekly basis is Afosa Ojomo, who Mm. wrote the book, The Prosperity Paradox, recently with the late Clayton Christensen, and Mm. is a really inspired thinker on the role of market creating innovations and how companies can build and create systems of value that really deliver both on kind of prosperity and life-changing impact. So I'm incredibly inspired by Afosa's thinking um, and as well as his approach to the world. He's a really kind, inclusive, challenging, and inspiring leader. So I'm really grateful for his partnership and his mentorship. I really need to read some of his work. Life hack. Is there one habit you've adopted in your life to keep yourself effective, productive, and or motivated? Yeah. <laughs> the habit I've adopted is talking to health tech founders. They're so inspiring. They have much more difficult jobs than me. And, um, and they also have a really inspiring vision. So I stay productive and motivated and inspired by being in touch with 
leaders who are building businesses in really tough contexts. And it just is an endless source of inspiration for me. Wait, no, that's, that's my life hack. Mara, that, I took it. It's great. It's amazing. I love it too. <laughs> ah, on the reading front, is there a resource you use to stay up to date on what's going on in the industry? Yeah. I mean, this is really self-promotional, but I love Do it. Do it. Yomi Kazim's monthly summary of what's happening in health tech in Africa, which he sends out on behalf of Salient every month. You could subscribe to that on our website. It's brilliant. You know, before Yomi joined Salient, he was my one of my favorite journalists on the African technology scene when he wrote for Quartz. So it's just so fun to have his brain and his expertise looking at health tech across the African continent. I love reading everything he writes. Um, the second thing I'm just always interested in is just, you know, most things that the Center for Global Development publishes. I just hold them in such high regard. So I'm interested in, you know, everything they're thinking about <laughs> from migration to sort of procurement, because uh, I find their, their analyses always so incisive. Amazing. Last question for you, Mara, is just for fun, if you could recommend a book, a blog, or a podcast from your personal interests that you've enjoyed? Yeah, um, I have two. So I really enjoy the Slate Culture Gab Fest podcast. <laughs> I haven't listened to that one, but it, just from the title, I think I would like it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't always have time to read everything that's coming out or see all the movies or TV shows, but they're, it's three critics who give you their take on kind of what's hot in culture. And um, from their takes, I can pick and choose sort of what movies or stories or critical essays I want to go read. So it's really nice. fun. Um, the second thing I'm into just recently is a podcast by NPR called Throughline which looks at the historical context of um, something we're seeing in, in current events today. Um, so it's longer form journalism that really dives into the history of different, um, different things we're seeing today. So it's really, really fun for me to learn about little tidbits from history. Super interesting. Mara, this has been so much fun. For listeners who want to find out more about Salient or about you or about this I3 opportunity, What's the best way to get started to find out more? Yeah, I3, please apply. You can visit the website at innovationsinafrica.com. Um, the call for applications is open now through August 14th, and our first cohort will be announced at the end of September. Salient Advisory is just salientadvisory.com. We have the same Twitter handle. My Twitter is at Mara Catherine. So please be in touch in any of those in any of those channels. And we're always excited to have conversations with people who are interested in the future of health tech. So don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you so much, Mara, for joining us on the show. We're going to have you back in 24 months to hear all about what happens <laughs> with i3. <laughs> Great. That sounds wonderful. Thanks for having, having me and, and thanks so much for facilitating such an interesting series of conversations. This conversation with Mara got my head spinning in so many different ways. One thing that it got me thinking about is how, in a lot of ways, the journey towards locally-led innovation is a journey towards private sector engagement. What do I mean? When I look around me at the innovations that have been born and bred in Africa, the organizations and products that are getting the most traction tend to be in the private sector, even though I myself was raised in the aid sector. 
And the reason these organizations can get ahead is because they understand these markets. They resonate with these markets. They can reach and connect with these markets in a way that foreigners cannot. But when I look at aid funding, first, aid is restricted often by regulation in the ways in which it can invest in technology. And when it does invest, it's always biased towards Western-led innovations. Because that's just how the market is shaped. An innovator in America is just going to have a better connection and a better understanding of how to work the USAID machine. And so being someone that's passionate about innovation in Africa, by Africa, that means I kind of have to be looking at new ways of engaging with the private sector while balancing those private sector motives with the goal of serving the world's poorest. Mars is doing something super interesting in this space. So again, spread the word. If you or someone you know is a health tech founder who's going to change the way that the health supply chain works in Africa, head over to innovationsinafrica.com. And if you're interested to learn more about the health supply chain, join us again in two weeks when we speak with Samuel Okwada of Remedial Health about the trials and tribulations of getting products to people in Nigeria. I'll see you soon.